Everything here at Keyboard Kimura is presented by OneBone, the first size-inclusive, big and tall brand. If you've been rocking with me for a while, you know I've been rocking with OneBone for a little bit now, and there are a bunch of reasons why. In addition to the fact that I straight up love their gear, from the different styles of pants and shorts, to the shirt varieties, hoodies, zips, the hot sauce, the whole collection, I'm in. But it's also because they understand that size doesn't matter, fit does. I'm a bigger guy and I carry it all in my belly, which meant for me, finding shirts that were long enough to not be revealing when I raised my arms or that kept me covered if I had to crouch down to pick something up was a challenge, but One Bone solved that. All the tops have added length to cover the gap between your shirt and your pants and everything is made from premium fabrics with tops ranging in size from medium to 8XL and bottoms going from a waist size of 30 to 65 inches. There is a sizing guide on the website that makes it easy to find the absolute right fit. And from flyweight to heavyweight and beyond, One Bone has got you covered. They offer free exchanges and returns to guarantee your perfect fit. And you can even buy now and pay later with four interest-free payments. On top of that, they're Canadian. And for me, that's important. As a One Bone ambassador, I've got you covered with a one-time promo code for 15% off your entire order. All you have to do is visit the link in the show notes, onebonebrand.com forward slash Spencer Kite, and enter the promo code Spencer Kite. That's my name, Spencer Kite, all caps, all one word, at checkout, and you get 15% off your entire order. It is, as I said, a one-time use code. But I'm confident that once you cop some One Bone gear and become part of the One Bone family yourself, you'll understand why my entire wardrobe consists of One Bone apparel. Go check out Drop 17, which hit the site a couple of days ago, featuring four new colors in the scoop and the V-neck t-shirts, plus the new Outwork pants in military green and black. I've got an order going in this week. You should too. One Bone, for big and all. Greetings and salutations. What's up, everybody? It's E. Spencer Kite, your friendly neighborhood Spencer man, back here on Keyboard Kimura for episode 44 of the Next Day Takeaways presented by One Bone. We are speaking about Noche UFC, which took place last night at T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. It was an absolute roller coaster of emotions, lots of great performances, lots to discuss, some controversial moments, some questions that we have about how things are going to play out going forward. And so we have taken the better part of a day to get those all in line. And so now we come here to bring to you our thoughts. Before we get there, as always, we go through the results. In the main event, Alexa Grasso retains her title after battling, battling Valentina Shevchenko to a split draw. 48-47 Grasso, 48-47 Shevchenko, and 47-47 from Mike Bell awarding Alexa Grasso at 10-8 in round five that we will certainly talk about more as this show progresses. In the co-main event, Jack Della Maddalena moves to 6-0 in the UFC, 16-fight winning streak with a split decision win over Kevin Holland, 29-28 across the board, 2-1 for Jack Della Maddalena, who continues moving forward in the welterweight division. Middle bout of the main card bantamweight division, Raul Rosas Jr. gets his second UFC victory, a first-round TKO stoppage win over Terrence Mitchell, in just 54 seconds for the 18-year-old to get moving in the right direction again. At lightweight, Daniel Zelt Huber submits Christos Yagos. Three minutes, 26 seconds into the second round. A beautiful anaconda choke for the golden boy, for himself to get to two straight victories in the UFC, two and one overall inside the octagon. And in the main card opener, Canadian Kyle Nelson earns a unanimous decision win over Fernando Padilla. 29-28 twice, 30-27 once for the monster who picks up his second consecutive win as well and is now 2-0-1 in 2023. On the prelims, Lupi Godinez dominates and submits Elise Reed three minutes and 37 seconds into the second round 
Rear Naked Choke, a tremendous performance from Lupi. We will talk about her more going forward. At middleweight, Roman Kopilov knocks out Josh Fremd, finishes the fight with a body shot. I absolutely adore it. Four minutes, 44 seconds of the second round. Looked great. We will touch on Kopilov more as well. The flyweight contest between Edgar Scheires and Daniel Lacerda ends up being called, resulting in a no contest, I should say, a premature stoppage by referee Chris Tognoni at three minutes and 47 seconds of the opening round. Certainly something we will talk about as well. Tracy Cortez gets a victory in her return over Jasmine Jazdavisius, 30-27, 30-27, and 29-28 for the streaking contender series graduate. A good fight, a competitive fight. Certainly no real losers for me in that one. I will touch on that a little more as well. Lightweight fight, Charlie Campbell spoils Alex Reyes's return to the octagon. Six years after he suffered his first loss, he caught a second one. TKO win for Charlie Campbell. Three minutes and 38 seconds into the opening stanza. And in the opener, Josephine Knutson, unanimous decision win over Marnik Mann. 30-24, 30-25, and then 30-27 for Thunder, who kicks off her UFC career with a dominant victory to get things, continue things, undefeated, continue progressing in the UFC, and start making some headway as she now is officially on the roster. So I want to work my way backwards up the card in the in the way that the night progressed this time around because I think I want to just get through some of the early stuff and then be able to sit down and, and build on the main event a little bit more. So the first point for me, I mentioned it in there, the Tracy Cortez-Jasmine Jazdavisius fight. It's one of those matchups where I don't think you come away as much as Jazdavisius lost. I saw Mike Malott, one of her teammates, post this on Instagram today of like, sure, you didn't get the result. But there's no loss here. And I I wrote that in about Saturday night, about Saturday's action, excuse me, on keyboard Kimura, because I felt the same way. Like you watch that fight, and regardless of how you scored it, there's no national allegiances here. It's impossible for me to come away from that fight feeling bad about Jasmine Jazdavisius as a fighter, as somebody that is de- developing and progressing. You see the grit, you see the toughness, you see the tenacity. I think you can make a case that she won that fight 29-28. Saw lots of people scoring it that way on Twitter in the moment. I don't have a problem with Tracy Cortez winning the fight at all. And she gets full marks and continues to look good. Looked improved in her striking in that fight. Didn't have to wrestle at all to get a good victory over a game opponent. But there are moments where we get, where we lose sight of, of the overall picture and we get wrapped up in wins and losses, which is weird because there are times where we don't care about wins and losses, understandably. But like, this is one of those instances where Jazz doesn't lose any ground losing to Tracy Cortez in the manner that she did. It was a super competitive fight. As I said, I think you can make a case for her winning 29-28. Didn't go that way. Isn't how it played out. But this isn't a, oh, she's not who we thought she was. She's not going to go any higher than this, any further than this. She is 34, but she's relatively young in her MMA career, and there's still room for her to grow, and you're seeing those improvements, those developments. So if she can continue to bolt on things and improve some of these little elements, getting her head off the center line a little more, figuring out a few better ways to work in her takedowns, to land with a little bit more power in the striking department, she's going to be fine. And if it just stays where where we are now, then she is a fringe top 15 fighter for the next three, four, five years. And that's great. Now, Cortez really impressed me on Saturday. She hadn't fought in a little over a year. She was dealing with the passing of Henry and Angel Cejudo's sister, who is very close to her and her family and condolences to Henry and Angel and the whole team at Fight Ready, everybody in the Cejudo family and everybody dealing with that loss. I've been a little bit hesitant to get behind Tracy Cortez because as much as we've seen some flashes, we haven't seen a performance like we saw Saturday night. And that to me is one of those performances that gets me even more excited about her going forward. Not that we needed more people to be excited about in the flyweight division. I'm not going to match make out that fight or the main event today. As you know, if you tuned in last week, I'm going to save that 
or a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to save that for tomorrow and dedicate the entire episode of the Keyboard Kimura podcast to matchmaking the flyweight division because I think it's fascinating. And I think there's a lot of interesting things to think through and work through and talk about. So we'll save that for there. But Tracy Cortez is very much a part of it. She's very much a part of that ascending class that we have to pay real close attention to as we move forward at 125 pounds. So let's go to the flyweight fight here. Edgar Shires, Daniel Lacerda. The fight is stopped prematurely. I don't think anyone disagrees with that. I know Edgar Shires and his team are appealing. Fine, it is their right to. I don't think that I don't think the result will get reversed. Chris Tognoni made a mistake. He made a mistake. And it's one of those situations that is a very difficult position for a referee because you want to give that athlete that is stuck in the choke, as Lacerda was, the best care possible. You want to be alert on their behalf. And so what he saw, he felt was Lacerda going out. And so he stopped the fight. And that wasn't the case. Now, from there, everything just kind of goes haywire for a little bit. It starts with Dominic Cruz going in the way that only Dominic Cruz does. And in a fashion, in a manner that really, for me, as a fan, as a consumer, as somebody that covers this sport as closely as I do, was quite off-putting. Dominic Cruz sounds and continued to sound throughout the broadcast like a bitter ex-fighter or current fighter. I guess he's still a fighter. Like a bitter fighter who believes he knows best in every and all situations. And he has an axe to grind. And it goes back to three years ago with Keith Peterson stopping his fight against Henry Cejudo in Dominic Cruz's opinion too early, not giving him enough of a chance. And since then, he has been the most prominent vocal critic of officials every opportunity he gets. If this were an isolated incident and he went in on Chris Tognoni, it would be fine. But it's not. And he carried it on throughout the rest of the night. There were comments about, he's a good official. He's not going to stop it early. Chris Tognoni's back in the cage and J.A. gives him a little shout that he's back in the cage and Cruz has to take another shot. And there's just moments like that, right? The main event, Valentina Shevchenko gets that mounted guillotine and Dominic Cruz can't help himself but go back to the callback of knocking Chris Tyone to say, Herb Dean knows what to do here. He's not rushing. He's not checking the arm. He's not doing anything. As if they were comparable A A to B situations. Apples to apples situations, which they were not. And I get it. Dominic Cruz doesn't like referees, thinks he has all the answers. And then we'll get to him in the main event as well. But it just felt like it took away from the moment because here's the other piece of it. They instantly reviewed the outcome. They instantly reviewed the end of the fight. They overturned Chris Tyone's decision and Chris Tyone apologized to Daniel Lacerda in the cage, said, I was wrong. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. So we ended up with the best possible result and Chris Tyone taking accountability to the one and only person that it matters to in this moment, Daniel Lacerda. That's the only person he truly owes any kind of explanation to. And he handled it. And we didn't hear anything of that from Dominic Cruz. He just continued to go in. And to me, it honestly makes the broadcast seem amateurish. Now, I'm not saying you can't criticize officials, right? We all have watched all kinds of other sports and continue to watch other sports where referees blow calls and we get on the officials and commentators get on the officials. But it's never as personal as Dominic Cruz made it on Saturday and makes it anytime he calls them out because it is always about what he wants. He wants explanations. He wants accountability. He's dictating that all of these men and women need to stand forward and explain themselves because he disagrees. And I don't think that there's an issue. I have no problem if, if officials and athletic commissions want to introduce more transparency I am all here for it, 
But here's where I get a little bit twisted. Dominic Cruz doesn't come out and face the firing squad and face the question line for the comments he makes on commentary. If he does, I haven't seen it. There's no moment at the end of a broadcast where he and Cormier and John Anik come and sit in front of the media and answer questions about the mistakes they made. And so I get that it is your job to comment on the fights and to analyze the fights. And he made a mistake, but he made a mistake. It doesn't need to be an ongoing thing for the rest of time. I think Dominic Cruz was outstanding when he first started doing commentary. I think he has regressed a great deal. I think he carries himself on broadcasts like the smartest person in the room and the only person that knows what's going on, even when there are moments every single event where it's clear that he doesn't know what's going on. And for him to go in on someone that is a part of this larger family, this larger group of people that is making these events happen, the way he did on Saturday was really off-putting to me. And I would truly, honestly, welcome any kind of feedback, any kind of thoughts all of you listeners have about your feelings on that moment, on that broadcast, in terms of the way Cruz was talking, the way he goes in on the officials. I'm not saying we can't be critical, but to me, there's a line. To me, there's a limit. And Dominic Cruz was over it on Saturday. Which brings us to Roman Kopilov, who is turning out to be an absolute problem at middleweight. Looked phenomenal against Josh Frem. Just everything he landed, landed with force. Everything he threw was clean, was thought out, was well executed. Hurt Josh Frem multiple times. Didn't rush, wasn't overzealous, just took his time and knew that I will eventually wear this man out and get him out of here. And then finished him with a left hand to the body, which was just beautiful. I love me a good body shot KO. So that's four straight for Roman Kopilov. Four straight finishes as well in 13 months. Run started last September in Paris. Here we are, middle of September, Noche UFC. Four wins, four finishes. Now we got to figure out what to do with him. And this is where it gets interesting for me. And this is why I enjoy watching every fight. This is why I enjoy tracking these people and paying attention early. Because the first two fights of his career didn't look like this. And Alessio de Chirico, which was the first fight last year in this run in Paris, was a very good win, but it was one win. It brought him to one and two in the UFC. But as we've been building over the course of these next three victories, you see more and more that it's not a fluke. You see more and more that it's technique and talent and confidence and understanding. And I don't know if he is going to be a contender in the middleweight division. I don't know if this is a run that turns into six, seven, eight consecutive victories and a championship opportunity or a top five ranking, but I'm all the way in. I am all the way in. Whoever he gets matched up with next, and I have some thoughts on that as we get going forward a little bit more, I want to see it. I already want to see it, and I want it to be on a main card. I want it, or on a pay-per-view card where it's on the televised prelims and we build him up and it's the last fight of the televised prelims because this is really interesting to me. This is compelling to me now. We've got a new guy in a division that is always in need of new guys that's starting to push forward and finishing fights and delivering exciting performances. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm looking for all these weeks. I come on these programs that I put out here on Keyboard Kimura and talk about. I'm looking for this for not just this fight, but the next fight and two fights and three fights and four fights down the road. That's what's been building with Kopilov and it's been growing. And my anticipation of his appearances has grown with each of these performances. And I know I'm not alone, but I hope we're also not a small group because this dude is doing the things that everybody says they want to see and they want to watch and they want to follow. And so I hope everybody has been seeing and watching and following because he's going to face somebody, you know, very well next time out in all likelihood. And if he beats that person and it's five straight and it's five straight finishes, well, then we're talking about he's facing somebody in the top 10. And then you really have to take note 
And I really don't want to hear anybody say, where did this guy come from? Because it's been a year. You've had a year to get on board. This is your last chance. The bandwagon is filling up. There's not many seats left. Get on board the Roman Kopilov bandwagon right now. Start paying attention. This dude looks legit. He looks serious. He's going to get that big test next time out. And I hope people tune in for it. On a similar note, Lupi Godinez looked phenomenal on Saturday. And it was one of those performances that I believe I tweeted out something along the lines of, Lupi is one of those inexperienced competitors that you see growing by leaps and bounds. And it's why I want to track them from the get-go, right? Got to the UFC with just five fights, five and zero, coming off a win over Vanessa Demopoulos to win the LFA title, majority decision victory, comes into the UFC, has a good performance in a losing effort against Jessica Panay, although I still think she won that fight, but has just been building and building and building and getting better. And she's gone down to train with the crew at Lobo Gym in Guadalajara and Alexa Grasso and that team and Diego Lopez as well. And has looked continuously improved and better and better each time out. And Saturday was an absolute breakthrough performance. She mauled Elise Reed. And now I don't think Elise Reed is some kind of high level competitor. And there's going to be a point here in the not too distant future where Loopy ends up up against it with somebody that has a wealth of experience and isn't going, isn't in theory going to get steamrolled the way that Elise Reed did. But I tell you what, in terms of progression, in terms of development stories, Lupi Godinez's development story is one of the better ones in the last few years in the UFC. We all knew she was a good prospect. We all knew what she brought to the table and that she had the upside if she could tap into these things. She's tapped into it and more. She looked fierce on Saturday. She dropped Reed with a left hand. She threw her around the cage a couple of times. She was all over her from the start, the whole way through, nearly tore her arm off to end the first, took her neck in the second, dominant performance, and in a division again where there's a little bit of sameness, right? There's a little bit of staleness in that top 15, a lot of names where everybody's fought each other and everybody's kind of just cycling through. Lupi Godinez has the potential, has the opportunity here to be that spark that just changes some stuff. And I'm really fascinated, really curious to see where she goes next and what it looks like from here on out. When he debuted in the UFC, I said I was all in on Raul Rosas Jr. for the next five or six years. I still am. I still am. But I tell you what. It's going to be an interesting ride because as much as he goes out and wins on Saturday in under a minute, I wasn't particularly impressed. There wasn't anything about it that changed my thoughts on him yet. He goes out, runs through Terrence Mitchell, who is throwing wildly, but still lands a couple shots on Rosas Jr. He gets the finish. It's There's a frenetic element to him. And I'm not sure that's going to work. Luke Thomas made a really great point in his post fight talking about Rosas Jr. and saying, we can't lead with the fact that he's 18 and use that as a crutch and an excuse for bringing him along slowly or giving him these, these different opportunities or how we grade him. And he drew the comparison to John Jones, whose record he is very much trying to beat and talks about regularly and said, ostensibly John Jones was beating people. And then we went, man, he's only fill in the blank 21, 22, 23. When he wins the title with Rosas jr, 18 is the lead. And then we get talking about the skill and the room to grow and things like that. And that's fine, but he shouldn't get any different treatment in terms of our analysis, in terms of our criticisms because he's 18. He shouldn't get any grace for being 18 and competing at this level. He wants to be here. He wants to fight at this level. And as much as I agreed with the decision 
to put him in there against a guy like Terrence Mitchell and forecasted this exact thing happening. There's coming a point here at some point, and it's going to be interesting to see how the UFC books him here because this can go a couple different ways, right? This can go the Chase Hooper way where it's win one, lose one, win one, lose one through the first few fights in the UFC that doesn't do anything to help him. It can be a few journeymen overmatched, bring him in to lose to Raul Rosas Jr. fights that build his record, but maybe doesn't necessarily build his skill. Or we can start testing this kid. We can start giving him not like deep end of the ocean tests, but more experienced guys, people better than Terrence Mitchell, right? Terrence Mitchell brought in on short notice to face Cameron Simon earlier in the year, gets freight trained, was competing in Alaska, hadn't beaten anybody that had more than seven fights in like six or seven years, like just out there smashing cans, which is perfectly fine. But then we can't pretend that Raul Rosas Jr. running through him on Saturday night at Noche UFC is some great big achievement. And so for me, as I said, coming into this fight, it's the same thing coming out. Great. You move him forward. He gets back in the win column. I need to see the development. I need to see the improvements. And we didn't see it on Saturday. There's nothing to that performance that made me go, oh, he learned from losing to Christian Rodriguez. He still came out like a banshee and went ham and tried to get this dude out of there as quickly as humanly possible. The other piece of this is that, and this is just a me thing, 100%, I don't need Raul Rosas Jr. going to his media availability with his sunglasses on and saying, I'm different. I can be a superstar. You're not yet 19. You're two and one in the UFC and you beat a couple of guys that aren't going to get any victories in the UFC. Jay Perrin went winless. Terrence Mitchell is probably done now that he's gone 0-2 with two first round losses. Just slow your roll a little bit. I understand being confident. I understand having all the faith in the world in yourself. Fine, cool, great. Grow as a fighter, beat some people of substance, beat some people that matter, that are relevant to these conversations, show us some progression, and then we can talk. It feels like we are always in a hurry, both the athletes and the media and the fan base, to crown these people before they've done anything. There was nothing about Saturday that made me feel like this kid is growing, developing, improving. He's got a ton of room to grow and get better and maybe even eventually chase down that John Jones record, right? I said at the start of the year, when I put out my fighters to watch, the reason I feel that he has the best chance of beating John Jones's record is because he has the most time of anybody that has tried to do it, but he's now going to be through his first full year on the UFC roster. And I don't think he's gotten that much better and he's at an age and he's at a point where he should be getting better. This should be where you grow by leaps and bounds and take big steps and do those things like we saw with Ian Gary when he got into the UFC, right? First full year was taking those fights against Darian Weeks and Gabe Green and logging 15 minutes each time out and learning to fight patiently and pick your spots and do some work in spots where you're less comfortable rather than just going out there and smashing dudes and going crazy in the first minute to try to get somebody out of there. The next time out, I want to see some progression. And if we don't, it's going to start to change my opinion and my projections of Raul Rosas Jr. The co-main event was one of those fights that I was really looking forward to. I said during the week, was I maybe becoming a Kevin Holland guy? And now that we're past it, now that we're beyond it, I don't think I'm as frustrated with Kevin Holland as I once was, but I also think that a lot of my long held beliefs and long held thoughts about Kevin Holland just continue to get proven true when he gets to these points. There was no wrestling. There was no grappling. It was just, let's go out and have a punch up and I'm going to talk a little bit and I'm going to, you know, 
make a show a little bit with the grab my butt when he kicked me in the butt and stuff like that. And for the most part, Della stayed focused, worked behind combinations, landed really efficiently, and got a victory. And as much as I understand people's enjoyment of Kevin Holland, I think we got to be real about this guy. I think we have to have just the honest, earnest conversation of Kevin Holland is going to be 31 in a couple of weeks. And every time he gets to a certain point, he falters. And I don't even know if it's based on skill. I don't even know if it's, he's not the better fighter. He very well could be the better fighter of the two men that were in there on Saturday. But Jack Della Maddalena wanted to win more and Kevin Holland wanted to entertain more. And it goes back to what I talked to him about prior to this fight. I get that you want to entertain and that's how you feel you get your money up. And you, I mean, his, his whole thing, the title of the story was Mr. Holland's mantra, get rich or die trying. I mean, it's going to get you opportunities and, and as frequently as he fights, he's going to continue to be in there. But I would argue that the better money is the further up you go that ladder. And if you don't give yourself the full opportunity to win, you don't give yourself the best opportunity to win every time out, that eventually limits your money. Now, I don't know what Kevin Holland's pay situation is. I don't know if he's on a win and show situation or if he gets a flat rate, whatever it is. But like if he's on win and show, which as always, let me make sure is clear, is an archaic idea that needs to be done away with. But if he's on win and show, then going out and entertaining and losing loses you half of your money. So if this is about getting your money up, win fights, get that money up. Now I'm not mad that Della Maddalena won. I am very fascinated with Jack Della Maddalena. I think he is a intriguing fighter who is one of those dudes that we just don't know where that ceiling is because he looks perpetually unbothered in there and he's able to win close fights like this. And so we could throw him in there with a top 10 fighter next time and think maybe this is the one. And he goes out and just continues to look really good. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. But Kevin Holland is just who he is, right? He told us, he showed us who he was coming into the fights with Derek Brunson and Marvin Vittori, right? Has that phenomenal year in 2020. Gets the opportunity to headline. He is getting that star treatment. And he goes out and goes three straight fights without a victory. And then he moves to welterweight and says, hey, it's just this. And then there are moments where he just stumbles. And we got to accept that there's a limit to how far this dude is going to go. And he reached it again on Saturday. Okay. Let's talk about this main event. First and foremost. I disagree with Mike Bell's 10-8. I don't understand how you score that round. 10-8. Now, I understand the rules. I have passed John McCarthy's command course. I stay on top of judging and officiating and things like that. I am looking forward to, in the next couple of years, getting out to one of the ABC conferences in Vegas in the summer, things like that, and taking some online courses to just brush up on my judging and refereeing understanding and knowledge but I don't understand how you score that round 10-9 because if you're going to, sorry, I don't understand how you score that round 10-8, excuse me, because if you're going to score that round 10-8, then it feels like the round where Valentina Shevchenko is in a mounted guillotine choke that looked as close, as close, if not closer to being finished than Grosso's rear naked choke attempt to finish out sort of the fifth round or the main part of that final 90 seconds of the fifth round then they have to be weighed the same. And they weren't. And I understand that you can't go back and change it. And it's a spur of the minute. You have to fill in a scorecard. And that's what he turned in. But I disagree with the scorecard. And that's my right. And that's my opportunity. That's my, that's my, I'm allowed to do so. What I won't do, however, is sit here and pull the Dominic Cruz and demand that he come stand in front of the media and stand in the spotlight and justify that score because, you know, we don't do that with 
anybody else. No one else does that, right? Everybody that's out there demanding that Mike Bell be held accountable and explain himself to all of us. How would we feel? How would any of those folks feel if any time people disagreed with what they said, what they wrote, what they put out on a podcast, we said, no, okay, come out here. Tell me why. I disagree. You need to explain yourself. It's it's crazy. We're not sitting in that chair. We didn't see what we what he saw. Also, we haven't judged hundreds upon hundreds of fights. And I really appreciate John Anik after the fact, trying to sort of sort things out, right? And and put a little bit of a, hey, let's let's be measured here to it by saying Mike Bell has been one of, if not the best referee in the business for the last few years. Absolutely right up there. And DC and Dom couldn't get past it. DC said what he said and he wanted to get past it. And then Dom just couldn't because he's a dog on a bone with these things. And he's got that ax to grind and he wants all officials to be held accountable because he just doesn't like them, right? He doesn't understand their job. He doesn't understand how they come to the scores they come to both literally and figuratively. And he wants them to explain it to him because he feels he's right all the time and it's annoying as shit. And I'm so tired of coming away from these fights. And the only thing people want to talk about is the one round that they feel is egregious. And as I said, I started this by saying I disagree with the round. But the thing that sucks here is that we got an absolute classic fight. And the only thing people are talking about is Mike Bell's 10-8. We got a classic fight. And if you want to say that that classic fight was sullied or ruined because of that score... Fine, but I disagree. I didn't watch that fight thinking, man, I hope a judge doesn't screw up the way this is scored. I'm not going to go, I'm going to go back and watch that fight and enjoy it over and over because of the ebbs and flows and momentum and the big swings and the big shifts in that fight. Because no matter how it was scored, the action inside the octagon between these two world-class talents was captivating. And it feels like we lose sight of that all the time because we want to latch on to the thing that is controversial, the thing that is driving conversations and it's understood it's valid. It's fair, but we need to, I think make sure we go back and also go as a really great fight though. Right? Like scorecards aside, how ended up verdict aside. God, that was a great fight. Just an amazing, amazing performance by both fighters. Valentina Shevchenko got dropped for the first time in her career. Alexa Grasso's hands looked great. The power looked great. She's continuing to develop. She remains undefeated at flyweight. She remains the champion. She looked great. Val also had phenomenal moments. That mounted guillotine. Terrific. She's doing well with her striking. The body kick in the first round, right out of the shoot, is great vintage classic Val. This was a phenomenal fight. And I don't want to sit here and only fixate on the 47-47 and the 10-8. Cause there was too many good things that happened inside the octagon that I would much rather talk about, that I would much rather focus on. And so it's weird to me because there's so many times that we don't seem to really care about the result. We don't seem to really care about the wins and losses. Except when we really want to, because it can be a thing that we bitch and complain about and we want to hold somebody accountable for. And then we just lose sight of everything else. Then we just push everything else aside. And I think this for me is part of a larger issue. And I want to apologize in advance to my guy, Craig Allen, who I like, who I think I have a a friendly collegial relationship with on Twitter. But God damn, man, it was hard for me to see as soon as that event ended, Craig jumping out there and being like, man, I can't wait for next week's event at the apex because after you have an event like this and you can do them in coliseums and you can do them everywhere else, nothing, nothing is better than going back to where they film the ultimate fighter and Dana White's contender series. And it's like that, that fight card just ended that event just ended and we're already on to next Saturday is going to suck. Next Saturday isn't going to be good enough. Can we just enjoy what just happened? 
Can we enjoy that really great fucking title fight that we had? Can we enjoy the cool co-main event? Can we enjoy the great performances from Daniel Zell Huber and Lupi Godinez and Roman Kopilov and Tracy Cortez? Can we just take those in for a little bit before we get into this next thing is good as suck and this isn't good enough and we need to be critical? Maybe I'm getting old and getting soft in my old age, but like we don't seem to appreciate this stuff enough because at some point it's going to be gone. At some point, we're going to get these bummer cards that aren't entertaining, that don't wrap with a classic championship fight. And we're going to have events that don't feel like Noche UFC felt. Instantly, everybody said this needs to be an every year thing. We need to find a way to do this every year. It's special. And the thing that's going to be annoying about it is that people are going to hold it out as the UFC could do this all the time forever and ever and ever. And they couldn't. Yesterday was different. Yesterday was special. Mexican Independence Day, a card loaded with Mexican fighters. It's the same as when they go to Australia and load it up with Australians or go to Ireland next year, apparently, and load it up with whatever Irish talent and European talent and UK talent they can find to stack those cards like they do in London and different places like that. That's what was special about last night. It was about those athletes. You can't do those pre-tape packages for every single card because they're not carrying the same weight. And yet, when it's done, we're already on to dumping on the next one. And why don't they do this every single week? We need to sit and appreciate these things more. Because there's going to be cards that just aren't as good as this. That aren't as entertaining. That don't give us those feels. And while it would be great If they always did, I try to be realistic about these things. I try to be pragmatic about these things. They're not all going to. And rather than look at it as, why don't all of them? I want to celebrate and appreciate the ones that do. The ones that make me feel like I felt last night. Regardless of the outcome of that main main event. Excuse me. Regardless of disagreeing with Mike Bell's scorecard. That was a fantastic fight. And that was a really terrific night of fights from start to finish. And if we don't sit and appreciate it more, and we as the prominent voices and the loudest voices and the people turn to for insights and guidance and thoughts on this stuff are just right away turning to, yeah, but next week's going to suck. What are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? What we're doing here to close out the show is our matchmaking segment. And so, as always, we're going to work from the start of the card up to the main event. And spoiler alert, you already heard it earlier. I'm not giving you the fight that I would make or the fights that I would make for the main event. And it's not what you think. That's a tease. You're going to have to tune in tomorrow to the Keyboard Kimura podcast presented by One Bone to get my full flyweight division thoughts. But we start with Josephine Knutson at strawweight, gets her first UFC victory, If Corey McKenna is still fighting, if Corey McKenna wants to return to action whenever she does, that feels like a good matchup to me. She's relatively young, relatively inexperienced, but has a couple victories in the UFC. She is a grappler. She has a little bit of pop in her hands. Feels like a good matchup for Knutson, the same way Knutson feels like a reasonable matchup for her as she returns after, I believe, a little more than a year away. That feels like a reasonable matchup. Charlie Campbell stops Alex Reyes. Next time out, I just say you put him in there with another contender series guy and Manuel Torres. And maybe Torres deserves a slightly further up the lightweight division rankings guy coming off his second consecutive stoppage victory over Nick Moda last time out with a really great step-in elbow, right? Everybody remembers that one. But I think lightweight is one of those divisions where we don't have to slow play athletes. We can pair young ascending fighters or or early in their UFC career ascending fighters coming off victories together and funnel it down till we get to, it's not getting down to one. This is the thing, right? There's eight or nine of these guys. We could pair Charlie Campbell up with five or six different people and they're all in the same range of one win, two wins, three wins in the UFC, 
trying to move forward. I like the idea of pairing up, pairing him up with Torres because it will just be a barn burner. They will just go out there and throw and somebody is getting hit hard or both guys are probably going to get hit hard and somebody is going to get put down and it will be wildly entertaining and we'll see which one of them moves forward. There's a whole bunch of options here, but we don't have to do the let's keep everybody away from each other that I advocate for a lot of the time. This is, this is a division. This is one of those instances where that idea of putting people together to see who moves forward at every stage makes a whole lot of sense to me. Tracy Cortez, we will get to on Monday. The flyweights, Edgar Scheidrez and Daniel Lacerda. That one's easy. You just run it back. It ended the way it ended. There's no reason to keep them apart and pair them with anybody else. You got to just do this one again. That's an easy fix. Which brings us to Roman Kopilov. Four straight wins, four straight stoppages. And this one felt a little difficult for me. I was trying to go through and look at the top 15 and look at the people, kind of where they are and what they've done as of late. And I struggled to find a name. And the name I ultimately landed on was Chris Curtis. Because I think Kurt is the right kind of test for him at this point. And so this fight on Saturday originally involved Chris Curtis. So it was originally Chris Curtis and Anthony Hernandez. Then Chris Curtis withdrew with a rib injury and was replaced by Roman Kopilov. And then Hernandez had to pull out after tearing a ligament and was replaced by Josh Fremd. And so let's put one of the original pieces back in with the guy that won. Kurt is super experienced. He's skilled and talented enough that if this Roman Kopilov thing is, is just that he's beating guys outside of that top 20, top 25, he'll show it. He'll, we'll find out in that fight. And if he's the real deal, if he's, he's more legit than that, then he can go out and beat Chris Curtis. Cause it's not a unwinnable pairing. I think it's the kind of fight you can put on the main card of a fight night easily. I think, as I said earlier, it can be the final fight of the televised prelims on a pay-per-view. You can do it that way because I didn't want to put Kopilov in too far up against somebody that it was going to be, not that it's too daunting of a test, but I want to just take this a step at a time from here out, from this point forward. Right, The four gets us to knocking on the door of the top 15. Now we got to go step by step. You don't go to where you are now and jump in with a top five, top seven, top eight guy. A guy like Chris Curtis makes a lot of sense to me. See what happens in a fight like that and adjust accordingly. Ironically, after saying I want to go step by step with Roman Kopilov, I want to jump in the deep end a little bit with Lupi Godinez. There's a fight coming up next week at the UFC Apex between Marina Rodriguez and Michelle Waterson Gomez. It is a rematch of a fight that took place a couple years ago that Rodriguez won by unanimous decision after five rounds. They are going to run it back, and I want to see Lupi Godinez face the winner. I think she is at a point, for me, where I just want to see that test. Let me see how she does a year after losing to Angela Hill but a couple of camps after starting with Lobo and setting up shop and that confidence growing and the skill base growing. Let's just see. Because each of these women, Rodriguez and Waterson Gomez, have moved past that point of being real contenders in this division. They're kind of just tenured contenders now. They're tenured names at straw weight. Michelle Waterson Gomez has had not great results in the last three or four years, really, but she's fought good competition and she's the kind of fighter as is Marina Rodriguez, that if Lupi Godinez hasn't progressed as far as I believe she has and doesn't continue to develop, they can certainly beat her. But I also think that Lupi is the type of athlete and the type of competitor that she would rise to that occasion. And I just want to see it. She's young enough in her career that if she goes out and loses to that athlete, whoever wins that fight next week, it's not the end of the world. You just reset again. You take a half step back and then start moving forward again. But if she wins, then we've got some real momentum. Then we've got something to really build on. 
because she's beaten that veteran name that was in the championship mix for a little while that has had more success than failures inside the octagon. I think the winner of that fight makes a lot of sense. And I hope that's what we see going forward. For Kyle Nelson, I know he called out Cub Swanson. He unfortunately, at least from my matchmaking side of things, is somebody that I booked a couple of events back with Paris and said for Morgan Chartier that he faces the winner of the Kyle Nelson-Fernando Padilla fight. I know Kyle Nelson wants more. I know that having won consecutive fights and being unbeaten in his last three, he feels like he should get to call his shot a little bit and get to face one of those veteran names. I understand the call out of Cub Swanson. He wants it to happen in Toronto when the UFC inevitably returns to Toronto, which is being targeted for Q1 of next year. But I just don't think that that's going to be what happens for him. I think he is going to continue to be in this, face some emerging talents, at least for one more fight. If he goes out and makes it three straight by beating Blake Builder, Fernando Padilla, and someone else in that Morgan Chirier vein, then he'll get that veteran fight. Then he'll get that guy that's just outside the top 15 and a chance to really move forward. He looked good again on Saturday. He really does. I thought it was a really astute point that was made by the broadcast team. He really does make people fight at his pace because you don't want to blow your blow yourself out and tire yourself out throwing and throwing and throwing and landing on his guard and he shells up well. It was a really good performance. He's looked really good this year. 2-0-1, good performances this year. But I think he ends up with the last pirate next and then we see what happens. For Daniel Zell Huber, give me the winner of the Jordan, sorry, Jared Gordon, Mark Madsen fight that is set to take place in New York City in November. So he's coming off the win over Christos Yagos. Before that, it was Lando Venata. So we just take another veteran step up. We move forward against another veteran competitor, somebody that has a little bit more to their game than Christos Yagos does, that is going to push you a little bit more, that can wrestle a little more, that can grapple a little more, that'll be okay trying to work their way inside of your big long range and is going to be coming off a relatively high profile win or, or medium profile win. Zell Huber's one of those guys that's in a position right now where it's tough to really rush him too far forward because lightweight is just in that space where the names are all kind of bunched up. And so for me, it's facing a veteran like this that yeah, it's not a big long winning streak that they're coming in on. It's not anything dynamic. It's not some flashy name, but it's a good test for a relatively young fighter that has looked good in his last couple, but had to deal with some some tough some tough spots yesterday. Had to deal with, you know, getting clipped up a little bit and getting ro- wobbled a little bit. But get him in there with Gordon or Madsen, whoever wins that fight. Keep him moving forward. Another good test. And then we see where we get to. So for Raul Rosas Jr., there's the kind of fight that I would like to see him have. There's there's names that I would like to see him in there against. There are tests that I would like to see him have. And then there's sort of the, this is more what I think is going to happen. The kind of test I would like to see him have is the winner of next week's Dan Argueta, Miles Johns fight, or put him in there with somebody like Ricky Tercios, or put him in there with somebody like Garrett Armfield, who showed good takedown defense and real crispy striking. But I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think the UFC is in a hurry to put this kid in there with people that can beat him and people that can really push him. And I know that that sounds like a slap in the face to the guy I'm going to say they match him up with next. And so we'll just get to it. I think they put him in there with a guy like Chad Ann Helliger, who won his debut, but is coming off a loss, is 36 years old, he hasn't competed in a year, and is the kind of slightly undersized, older, kind of limited fighter that makes for a good opponent for Rosas at this point in time. 
if he can't go out there and get Chad and Helliger out of there and beat Chad and Helliger, not necessarily finish him, but beat him, then we really need to take stock of this kid and figure out how to help him maximize things. But if he does, we're moving in the right direction and we can keep taking these little incremental steps. I don't want him to be in there with somebody that has had one fight in the UFC and a limited amount of experience, right? There's a few people on the roster that they could very well match him up with. It would not ever surprise me if we saw him in there with a JP Bays or a Fernie Garcia or, you know, someone in that group, Steven Koslow, who lost to Cameron Simon last year and hasn't fought since. Someone in that range of doesn't have a win in the UFC, should be somebody that Raul Rosas Jr. beats, but isn't somebody of great import to the UFC. And, and again, I'm not trying to slag those people. I'm not trying to throw shade at those people, but you look at the results in the UFC and that's just being honest about things. I think it will be someone in that vein. And so for me, Ann Helliger is sort of the like, best of those options, the best of those versions. Cause it's a good test. Chad's been around. He's fought good opposition. He's beaten guys that are in the UFC beat Brady. He stand out here in Chilliwack a bunch of years ago before Brady got on the ultimate fighter and made it to the finale that season. And so that feels like the right kind of next step, get him in there with somebody that's had a couple fights in the UFC. That's gotten a victory that has a wealth of experience from the regional circuit, knows what he's doing in there and can potentially push this kid without being head and shoulders better than him the way that Christian Rodriguez was. For Jack Della, I like the fight with Vicente Luque. That feels like the right kind of fight for me. I originally was leaning Sean Brady because the two of them were supposed to fight earlier this year. And if that's what gets booked, I'm perfectly okay with that because Della was you know, throwing a little bit of shade when Brady had to withdraw with a staph infection or a, an elbow infection prior to that fight at UFC 290. So if you want to run that one back, fine. My, not even objection to it, but my hesitancy with it is that Dell has won six straight and Sean Brady's coming off a loss. And so for me, I just want to reward the guy that is putting up victories by getting him in there with somebody that really has the opportunity to potentially move him forward. And Luke feels like a better matchup in that regard than Sean Brady, who's coming off. Yes, it's the first loss of his career, but it was almost a year ago now in Abu Dhabi to Bilal Muhammad. He didn't look terrific against Michael Chiesa before that and beating Michael Chiesa. And I say this with all the love in the world to Mav hasn't aged the best. Kiesa hasn't had any real success since then. And so Luque's coming off a main event victory over Rafael Dos Anjos, over an established name. He's positioned ahead of him in the rankings. And Luque's been around long enough that he's in that spot where a bunch of the people in front of him are guys that he's already fought and lost to, or his teammate and very close friend, Gilbert Burns, who he's not going to fight. And so he's in a beggars can't be choosers. You don't really have a, an out here where you can dictate terms of who you're going to fight. You're kind of stuck and got to face these guys that are coming up behind you a little bit until some of the log jam in front of you clears. I think you can make that a main event. I think you can headline a fight night with that fight. It gives Della that test over five rounds against an experienced guy, somebody that's going to go in there and meet him on his terms and test him. Let's just see it. You want to do it in Australia? Cool. You want to do it in Brazil? Cool. You want to do it at the apex? I don't care. Let me see that fight. All the violence, all the boxing, all the big shots. Sign me up. Lastly, Alexa Grasso and Valentina Shevchenko. You'll have to wait to hear tomorrow on the Keyboard Kimura podcast. I've got it all in front of me. I mapped out the division with like 40 fighters, matched them all up, trying to figure it all out. But I want to save it for tomorrow because it takes more than 
two minutes of diving into things for me to explain how I want to book out this division. And I think coming off Aaron Blanchfield's win, coming off Menon Fierro's win, with this fight ending the way that it did, I want to sit down and have a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more thoughtful conversation about the flyweight division. So I will get into that tomorrow. Back here, Keyboard Kimura, presented by One Bone. That's it for the takeaways. I hope you check us out tomorrow for that Grosso Shevchenko flyweight booking extravaganza, matchmaking extravaganza. I appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate you sitting through me being frustrated at times. Hope you have a wonderful week. Hope you had a wonderful weekend. Good to yourselves. Good to one another. Know that you're loved. And we'll talk to you tomorrow.